Good morning, Mars Hill. My name is Nikki Grassmeyer. I am the student's pastor here. Uh, and reading for us this morning is Aaliyah. She is an eighth grader in our community. Thank you, Aaliyah. Today's teaching text comes from Acts 19, verses 1 through 7, which is on page 1024 in your Shed Bible. While Apollos was at Corneth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of, the, of Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. This is the word of the Lord. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Ashley. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my joy to welcome you to our gathering this morning, and welcome to those of you online. Before we dive in to our teaching this morning, I wanted to give a quick update because last week, this past Wednesday, what are the days of the week anymore? I don't know. When was that? Wednesday? Um, we had our quarterly connect, and this was an opportunity from folks in our Mars Hill Bible Church community to come be in fellowship with Troy and myself, and occasionally we'll invite other leaders around the church to give updates on what's happening around Mars, vision, and, and what's next. And this was our last quarterly connect before our annual meeting in June. But we've also been committing to giving monthly financial updates, and we gave that update this past week. So I wanted to bring that to you this morning for those of you who weren't able to attend this past week or listen to the audio through the email online. So just a few slides for you before we dive in. First, this is the update through April 11 of this month. So you'll see a general overview with numbers and colors, okay? If you're like me and this is a little much for you, I'm going to break it down just a moment. What I want to point your attention to is first the monthly update. So since April 1st, we have much to celebrate so far this month because we are actually taking in, we have received through our joy box giving more than we've asked, more than we've budgeted for the month. So we celebrate that. This is excellent news. Thank you. Thank you. God is faithful and he is using our church. Um, to provide for the things that we need, and that's, that's beautiful. Um, I also want to point out the lower bottom right-hand corner. You see these numbers in red because we're not just looking at month to month. We're looking at the whole fiscal year, July through June. So when you take all the individual uh, amounts that we've budgeted for each month, there were two months that we were significantly behind, and what that's meant is that our net 
uh, amount that we've received is a shortfall of 3.62%. So as of right now, about-ish, with a few days removed that aren't calculated here, we're about 3.62% uh, behind, which means by the time we get to the end of the fiscal year, which ends in June, we are projected to be behind budget by about $80,000, okay? So if everything goes on as trends, we'll be behind by 80000 Now. We represent both. We celebrate this month, and we also want to bring to you the truth that this is where we're headed. Um, so I want us to see this because, A, we don't want to be afraid. There's no fear here. Troy and I aren't scared. Um, we're prayerful, and we know that God is faithful. Okay, so that's first and foremost. But two, we want to be transparent and vulnerable and honest with you to say this is kind of what we're considering when we go into meetings and our leadership team meets. We want to make sure that our community knows that this is the direction things are headed so that we might all commit to saying, God, what do you have for us to contribute individually to the life of this church? What might that look like over the next couple of months as we plan? So this is this for you. Are we good? Everyone understand? Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Let's pray before we get into our teaching this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a God who speaks and provides. Lord, and now we are expectant to receive from this your word, from the sacred text. May it form and shape our lives, and may we have eyes to see and ears to hear that which you are doing both in us and in this community um, as we seek to be a Jesus people for the sake of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's dive in. Um, I just want to point out real quick that, uh, I don't know about anybody else, but have you noticed that Michigan is being a little bit of an overachiever right now, weather-wise? Okay, so yesterday we had summer, right? Um, Today is a little spring-like with the April showers that are bringing my Mayflowers. I don't know about your garden. Um, and then tomorrow, it's like supposed to be winter, right? Um, so I thought we might start off, this was a perfect time for me to break out a list of, a reminder of sorts, five reasons that we love living here. <laughs> Just in case we needed a little perseverance, something to hold on to. The first, as you can see, is summers. Hold on, everybody, it's coming. Summer, summer's coming. We got our Meyer Garden concert lineup in the mail, and I was so giddy. I was like, it's coming. Summer's, summer's coming. The second thing that we're grateful for are all the lakes and water things. Those of you who love the UP and who love being by the water, it's melted, and it's going to be warm enough to be in here very shortly. Um, the third thing that we love about living here is summers. Just felt like we needed to punctuate that one. Um, but for those of you who are like, ah, summer's not actually my favorite, I'll give you this one. Number four, fall. Uh, particularly sweater weather. You see, I'm, I'm always faithful to don a good sweater. Um, that's just my MO. Uh, five, I think Pastor Hatfield has mentioned this before, Hudsonville ice cream. <laughs> Specifically, uh, the Traverse City cherry fudge. None like it. Um, but might I offer to you, this is a list of five things, might I offer a sixth honorable mention? As someone who's moved here from Chicago, I'd like to say parking. <laughs> yeah, I don't, okay, for those of you 
you who grew up here, you just don't understand. There was a time when Dylan and I lived in Chicagoland where we would go downtown and pay more for parking than we would a meal. Here, sometimes I find myself grumbling about the Motu fees, where it's like a whole two hours, 163, come on. We are blessed and highly favored, Michigan. Except when parking validation is available and you didn't know. There is nothing worse than paying for parking, having a good time, but then walking out without receiving that powerful little golden or white paper ticket that someone else paid for or fully authorized that releases you past the gate free of charge. It's my favorite. But it's also possible to miss out on the fullness of what's available to you. And that's, that kind of stinks, doesn't it? When it's available and you miss it. In a similar way, Mars Hill, our text this morning reminds us that it is possible to possess a certain degree of knowledge and miss the Messiah. It is possible to live a life that stops just short of proclaiming the fullness of the good news of Jesus Christ. Good news that death has been defeated, that the grave was insufficient to hold him, that the silence of three days didn't mean separation, that resurrection power prevailed. Why does this matter on the other side of Easter Sunday morning? Why does it matter? Today we begin a new series based in the book of Ephesians called Alive in Christ. And the book of Ephesians is in part Paul's unfolding to the church the fullness of what's been accomplished in Jesus Christ and consequently what's now altered and available to the church. But that fullness assumes something. It assumes not a partial proclamation, but a union made complete in Christ. If you look through the book of Ephesians over 30 times, the phrase or something like it, in Christ Jesus, is mentioned over 30 times. So what we'll discover over the next few weeks is that Paul is really leaning into an ecclesiology that stresses Christ as the head of the body and all the implications that that has for the church in Ephesus and what that might mean for us as the church today. So if we're in a series launching in the book of Ephesians, why in the world was our teaching text this morning from Acts Chapter 19, because here, through Luke's writing, we witness Paul's encounter with a group of disciples located in Ephesus, which became Paul's base of operations during his third missionary journey, which included Ephesus, Macedonia, and Greece. 
This account takes place somewhere between AD 54 and 57, before Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, before his trials and imprisonment in Caesarea, before his Roman imprisonment in, in the year 60 AD, which we read about at the tail end of Acts in chapters 27 and 28. Paul would then pin his letter to the church at Ephesus while imprisoned in about the year 62. So this account in Acts chapter 19 comes well before that. Here, Paul had already been to Ephesus with two people you might be familiar with named Priscilla and Aquila, and he left them. He left them in Ephesus. He moved on and then came back. Here's an interesting map. You can see all the places Paul went during his third missionary journey. You can see there in the yellow where Ephesus is circled. He had left and then came back. Now, what do we know about Ephesus? We've already explored the cultural context of Ephesus a little bit in two previous series that we've done recently over the past couple months. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time. You'll also get some of that context in the weeks to come as we teach through the book, but quick overview, it was a modern day Turkey and was a booming metropolis. It was the most populous city of the most populous province of the Roman Empire. Next to Rome, it was the largest city of the empire overall. And it was known for what one author calls luxury and licentiousness. That's an SAT word for you. You can Google that right now if you'd like. And it's a world-class center for trade. It was also steeped in cult worship. Remember the Temple of Artemis. We've talked about the cult worship that happened at Artemis' temple. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So there's so much happening here in Ephesus, but there was also a large and influential Jewish community and in this text, we encountered this group of disciples that had, go with me here, they had paid for parking, they knew the restaurant was good, but they didn't get a validated ticket on their way out. We'll walk through that in a minute if you missed it. So there's a group of disciples that there's something that they had said yes to, but there's also something that they had missed. They possessed a certain degree of knowledge, the text says. They must have been dutiful enough to be recognized by Paul or those that Paul knew as someone's disciples. Note that Luke doesn't mention whose disciples they were, okay? They'd even been baptized, but there's something they'd missed. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit, which had already come to the believers in Acts chapter 2. So, Marcel, as we prepare to be formed by this letter together in the coming weeks, I wonder what might happen in and through us if we are slow to wade into this book and first examine something about ourselves, both corporately and individually. I wonder what would happen if we first examine the fullness, the strength of our proclamation. As these disciples were missing the Holy Spirit, might we be courageous enough to ask the question, is there anything we've missed? Is there anything that we have missed? 
Because to be formed in Christ as Christ's body, to be alive in Christ, assumes that we've not only believed, but that there's something we've also received. It assumes we've witnessed to and are operating out of not a partial belief, but the full proclamation of Christ's headship and Christ's power. We can study Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus over the next few weeks. But our understanding of how we exist how we operate, how we might be transformed as the church depends on this starting place, either our partial proclamation or the fullness of it. And so through these few verses, I'd like to invite us into some self-examination, a little different for this morning. Consider this prep for where we're headed over the coming weeks. And to do that, I'd like to call our attention to three characteristics of these believers' faith that we, in turn, might use to assess the strength of who and what our lives really proclaim. Because everything from how we understand and define life together to our unity both within the church and between the church and the watching world, how we navigate interpersonal relationships and how we face spiritual opposition and warfare. All of these are themes that we will encounter in Ephesians. All of that depends on either the partiality or the fullness of into what or into whom our lives are situated. So let's start there. The first characteristic that I wanna look more closely at is authority, authority. Imagine that it's early to mid 19th century in England, think Sherlock Holmes. For those of you who didn't know, that was my maiden name. They called me Holmesy. So perhaps there's some British in here somewhere. Um, so think back to early to mid 19th century, Sherlock Holmes, and the police are trying to apprehend a criminal. What are the police shouting after this criminal? How do they do it? Something like, stop in the name of the law. Stop in the name of the law. It was a way for the officer to announce under whose authority they were operating. In this case, if you're in England, it's the crown. It's the crown's authority. Similarly, in ancient times, if a ruler needed to dispatch a message over a long distance, they'd deploy messengers or a series of messengers or heralds who'd communicate in their name and under their authority so that when the messenger arrived and gave the contents of this message, someone knew under whose authority this message was being delivered. In the Gospels, Jesus was clear then when he himself said, Matthew 28, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Authority has been established. Put a bookmark there. And let's read Acts 19.1 again carefully. The very first words in the chapter are, while Apollos was at Corinth. Okay. Who is Apollos? And what the heck is he doing here at the beginning of Acts chapter 19? One chapter earlier, we're told that Apollos was a Jew, a native of Alexandria, who came to Ephesus after Paul had left 
Priscilla and Aquila who are there, remember. And he is smart. He is described in the text in chapter 18 as learned with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Acts 18 also tells us that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. But that's not all that the text said. If you look carefully in Acts 18, 25, continues and said, though he knew only the baptism of who? John. Oh, that's interesting. There's something that Jesus has proclaimed that seems incomplete in terms of Apollos' knowledge. Knowing this about Apollos then gives us a little bit of context as to who these believers were. In chapter 19, it says they believed and were disciples, but Luke doesn't tell us of whom. Some speculate that they may have been followers of John the Baptist. And they very well may have similarly to Apollos only known the baptism based in John's authority or in the way that John commanded, which was, uh, just pick a gospel, this is Mark chapter 1, where John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that is what Paul cites later in, in Acts chapter 19. So these disciples were baptized by confessing their sins, being sorry for and turning from them, taking, in effect, a pledge of good behavior, But if they only knew the baptism of John, Paul realizes that they have missed something major. They didn't seem to know Jesus as the one for whom John was preparing a way. Because John didn't stop at the baptism for repentance of sins. Mark chapter 1 continues, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. So church, I wonder if any of us who have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit need this reminder. I wonder if there are any of us who are still, though we have been baptized, are still living like the proclamation stops at John's repentance and not Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. If our proclamation stops at repentance, behavior modification is as far as the good news goes. And salvation is based on how well you and I can get it together. I wonder if this is in part why the church is stuck. Because the authority we proclaim globally, or at least in the American church, and the claims to power we accept begin and end at behavior, confession, repentance, and then trying to do better. Now, John's baptism was necessary. We leave space for confession every week here in our liturgy as a church for very good reason. But that wasn't the whole story. 
there was a greater power to claim. Just this past Sunday, I, it was one of the greatest joys of my life to be able to baptize our daughter on Easter Sunday. And there was something really interesting that happened. Um, and she gave me permission to tell you this story, so she knows I'm telling it. But as she came up out of the water, she was crying. She was weeping, and I, and I didn't have the time to ask her in the moment what was going on there. But in the car on the way home, I, I made a note to ask her. I said, Brooklyn, would you invite me into why you were crying the way you were after your baptism? And she said, well, Mom, two of those tears were tears of sadness because it, I felt myself leaving like my old life behind. But the rest of those tears were tears of joy because I understood and was so excited to enter into life in Jesus. I don't know many adults who have articulated <laughs> that sort of identification, not just with resurrection, but with the death part of it too. My point is, what if she had only stopped at death? What if she had said, my, my sadness, mom, is all that there is. This, this part of it is all that there is. The part of who I used to be that I'm mourning, identifying with Christ and Christ. What if she didn't understand this piece of it? What I'm trying to impart to us is that for some of us, we're identifying here and we've forgotten the whole story. And that has implications for us. So my first question for self-examination is whose claims to authority do we accept as ultimate? Because whoever's claims we accept, the authority that we accept orders the story that we tell. If those authorities are lesser ones, even if like John the Baptist, they could be good, but they could be also incomplete. So whether that's the authority of a family member, a news anchor, a professor, a mentor, a pastor, the reminder this morning is the power and authority we claim is where our proclamation will peak. The second area of examination is that of acceptance. And this this all points to what we've received. So these disciples tell Paul that they received John's baptism. But even before that point, Paul asks them a curious question. So we're kind of working backwards here in the text. He asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive it? Now, because we're working backwards, we know why their answer was no. But to diverge from the text here a moment, what Paul's question tells us is that it is possible to believe up to a certain point and be without the Holy Spirit. This, too, leads to an impartial and, frankly, powerless witness, church. Because if we've not received if we are not operating from the power of the Holy Spirit, then from what source do we suppose we operate? I ask this question not to you, but alongside you. This is the question that kept me up this week thinking about this text. This area of examination is a risky one to consider because the question flies in the face of how we've learned to be independent 
and self-sufficient. It flies in the face of our egos, our grasping for control. And I imagine each one of us on a continuum here. Some of us might confess today that we have not at all received the Holy Spirit. Some of us watching or, or in the shed this morning, maybe you have not professed Christ at all. And so you're, you're in one spot. Some might be in theory, in practice, in knowledge. You understand something about the Holy Spirit, but you might confess this morning that you have not had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. For others, and I might put myself in this camp, we might wonder the times we've ignored the Holy Spirit's presence and decided to blaze ahead, to do something our way or to operate out of alignment with the Spirit's will. Wherever we are on that continuum, the ways in which we'll be invited to be formed as a body between now and Pentecost will ask us to reckon with our relationship, both individually and collectively, with the Holy Spirit. Because the unity that we are called to, the relationships we're called to, being alive in Christ is not possible without the power of the Holy Spirit. So what if today, what if today some of us need to receive for the first time or afresh? What if others of us need to repent and perhaps add to this confession we proclaim together this morning of the ways we've ignored the Holy Spirit, placing it in the back seat or in too tight of a structure because that's the way we were taught to? What if we need to repent of the ways that we've claimed power from elsewhere? From what power source do we operate? What have we received? Finally, the last area of examination is evidence. What evidence is there to show for that power. Acts 19, you look at verse 6, it says, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. These believers were re-baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, into his authority, but then Paul's not done. Paul places his hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they they have evidence. There's something in who they are and how they act that is evidence of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Now, note there here, there's only one other place in Acts 8 where the laying on of hands is associated with the imparting of the gifts of the Spirit. So let's not read this as overly formulaic, right? We're not going to then say, now, no one walk out of here, the shed, like, putting hands on people secretly. Just like, see what happens. This is not necessarily meant to be a formula, there are even some who suggest that the laying on of hands here was more often an act of fellowship and acceptance of the believer into the church, especially believers who were Samaritans or Gentiles who might naturally be seen as othered, right? The laying on of hands was saying, no, you're part of the family of God now. So it makes sense that these believers who had partial knowledge and were baptized in John's name, Paul would lay their hands on them and say, you're, you're, you're part of the faith, you're part of the church now. 
But what I do think we can consider from this is that when the Holy Spirit is received, there is evidence of that reception. There is fruit that you can point to. There are things that you can experience and witness both in yourself and someone else's life that you should be able to say, yes, the Holy Spirit is with this person. There is a power beyond what this person could do in or for just themselves. That is clear. And so before we look at this letter together, perhaps we spend this week examining the evidence in the way of spiritual gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. Just this past week, Troy and I had the pleasure of sitting down with a consultant from the glue assessment that we all took a couple months ago. Everyone remember that? Where you took and you filled out your spiritual gifts or your vocation or things you like to do. And we got to sit down with this person and look at for both our church overall and for each location how each community, each gathered body of believers is uniquely postured to reflect who God is in our context. So cool, and we can't wait to share those results with you soon. But as we were looking through those results, this was an example that there is evidence of how the Holy Spirit might want to use our community as a body in West Michigan, in our neighborhoods, and around the world. Perhaps for you, it's taking a fresh account of your spiritual gifts, saying, how has the Holy Spirit gifted me to uniquely serve the body with Christ as our head? So here's what I want to do before we go to the table. There are three invitations. Again, this is almost prep work before we launch into the book of Ephesians. Three invitations for you. For those of you who might say, I want to spend this week reconsidering my relationship with Jesus as the head, as re-examining the authorities that I proclaim. Perhaps this is your invitation to repentance. Repentance as a confession and a turning. Say, I want to choose another way. I love A.W. Tozer's quote from God's Pursuit of Man. He said, we can best repent our neglect by neglecting him no more. Let us begin to think of him as one to be worshiped and obeyed. Let us throw open every door and invite him in. Let us surrender to him every room in the temple of our hearts and insist that he enter and occupy as Lord and master within his own dwelling. So perhaps that repentance is for you this week. The second invitation is to a fresh kind of acceptance. That's an invitation to receive. Just before our gathering this morning, I uh, talked to Brian and our prayer team, there'll be a few people, myself included, during uh, the time that we're receiving communion, where if you feel like you'd like to receive, if if you're not sure if you've received the Holy Spirit and you have proclaimed Christ, We'd love to pray with you. We would love to pray with you. Because if there is a portion of our body, of our community, that is living powerless apart from the Holy Spirit, church, what might God do if all of us said yes to the power of the Holy Spirit moving in and through us? What might God do in the next few weeks and even into the future life of this church? So perhaps you're like, yeah, I'm 
I've been wrestling with my relationship with the Holy Spirit, and I'd love to pray with someone and perhaps receive either for the first time or afresh the Holy Spirit's power. But then finally, this is more of a reflective invitation. There's to examine the evidence, to examine the fruit. Just having a conversation this morning with someone, and the patience came up. This would be a perfect week to look at the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians and say, God, where are you asking me to pay attention? Where do I absolutely see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in my life? And where might I want that fruit to be cultivated more intentionally over the course of this series as we study Ephesians together? There's so much that God might want to do in and through us in the next few weeks, church. And I thank you in advance for leaning into this practice of self-examination because I believe it's a readying of our hearts for what God longs to do as we, as we journey toward Pentecost. Um, in Christ's authority, he set a table. He set a table and he gave us something to receive, something to nourish us, to empower us, to remind us. And that's the gift of the Eucharist. So I say to you, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you pray with me? How right and a good and a joyful thing at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and the archangels, all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name, the name above all names, Jesus. They sing, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Holy Spirit, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you in this meal would be for us spiritual nourishment, spiritual food. Would you fill us afresh? Would we be satisfied as we receive you. As you've done before, would you do it again through this meal as we gather? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So the story we tell goes like this. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim you proclaim, you tell of the Lord's death until he comes again. 
And so now we share the mystery of our faith corporately. And this is a faith that is shared not just by those here in this room or watching online, but this is a mystery that is shared by our spiritual ancestors and those beloved, those brothers and sisters all around the world. And that mystery is this. Would you say it with me now? Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. So all things are ready. We have gluten-free elements in the midst of the aisles here. We will also have Susan and Steve being our table hosts this morning um, down this aisle in the center. All things are ready. We've got John, I think Paul, um, myself will be, and Troy will be willing to pray with you if that feels like a next right step for you in response. But take this time, receive who you are the body of Christ.